All right. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to John chapter 11. So far, what we've been talking about in John 11 is God's sovereignty. If we pull back and look at the whole book, what we've been talking about Jesus is who is Jesus. And the answer that we've been coming to over and over again is that Jesus is the Messiah and that Jesus is God. He is the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament. But then we come to this and, and we have these questions that, that John is going to help us deal with, that Jesus uh, confronts in John chapter 11. And the big question that we're talking about in John 11 is, is God sovereign? Is God in control when we look at Jesus? Last week, we had that whole question, and the question that we were asking is, is God sovereign in my personal suffering? Because that's the question we ask when we're suffering. When we're looking, we're like, wait, I know that God is supposed to be sovereign, all-powerful, loving, but this is what I'm going through right now. And so we wrestle with that issue, and we try to reconcile these things of, is God sovereign even in light of my suffering? Now, it would be wonderful if we could answer that question once and for all. But human nature is that we ask that question over and over again. We saw a beautiful passage last week, emotional passage, where we saw the truth that, yes, Jesus is sovereign in your suffering. Jesus continues to love you in that. In fact, he shows his sovereignty and love through the suffering. And so we answered that question. And yet this week, the passage that we're going to look at brings up the question again, but in a different way. One of the questions that we ask God is, okay, God, I, I, I can maybe acknowledge that you are sovereign over the little things, like my life. It doesn't feel little when it's my life, but I can acknowledge that you're sovereign over my story. But man, God, when I'm looking around and I'm watching the news, are you sovereign over history? Are you sovereign over the big things? We just sang all of these songs that God wins. We are more than conquerors. But do you ever feel when you're looking, when you're watching the news, when you're seeing the trajectory of humanity that you're like, man, it just doesn't feel like we're winning. Kind of looks like we're on the losing side here. It feels that way. This is, the, we did not pick when we were going to be doing this passage, but in light of everything that's going on this week, doesn't it kind of make you question, like, God, what are you doing? Everything that's happening in Ukraine, God, are, are you sovereign over the big stuff? Are you sovereign when the presidents of other nations choose to attack different places? That's a question that, that here in the States we, we ask sometimes, but it's not as much where we have the difficulty when we're talking about God's sovereignty. Usually our difficulty is what we looked at last week. Hey, God, are you sovereign in my personal suffering? But if we zoom out and if we look at the church, Christianity globally, or even if we look back and look at the church historically— one of the big questions for the church is, God, what are you doing when I'm observing what the rulers of nations are deciding? 
God, what are you doing when, when there's war? It's a hard question to deal with God's sovereignty in those things. It's hard when we're, when we're looking at it. The, the areas that I most often feel this is, is when I, I look up, and, and I will admit I'm a bit of a media hermit. Not all media, but like news media. The only time I find out that things are happening is someone, if someone tells me. I, I'm too far on one side of things where I just don't know until someone tells me. But every once in a while, I'll, I'll look up. And what I see is, is terrifying. And not only for me, there are times where I think, and I'll talk to Pastor Billy, and I'm like, man, Billy, I think someday we're going to end up going to jail. Just seeing the trajectory of where things are going, and we're going to keep on preaching the gospel, we're going to keep on preaching the word, and at some point, that's going to be probably illegal. And that can be scary, thinking, well, what's going to happen to my kids? What's going to happen to my family? It can be scary not only for me, but often where I feel the most fear is thinking about my children. All right, this is the life that I'm facing. What is the life that they're going to face? Now, that's me here in the States. Put yourself in the position of the people in Ukraine. Not just in Ukraine, though. This is happening all over the world. Ukraine's what's happening right now, but in the Middle East, in the countries of Africa, Christians are facing these things every day where they're asking, God, what are you doing? I believe you're sovereign over my story, but are you sovereign over history? Now, when we ask those things, it shows a fear that we have. It shows an element where we're not trusting God's total sovereignty. And so when we look at this passage, and and we've already read it earlier in the passage, there's some elements where Jesus really isn't mentioned much in our passage. What it looks like is that the rulers of the Jewish people have taken over and their plan is going to win. But we're going to see that Jesus is moving in the background. Here's the big idea for this morning, all right? Man's dark plans cannot comprehend God's plan and are inevitably conquered by his light. Man's dark plans cannot comprehend God's plan and are inevitably inevitably conquered by his light. Before we jump in our passage, keep your finger in John 11. Turn back to the very beginning of John. Go to John 1 real quick for me. In John 1, we have this song, this poem, that kind of introduces all the things that are going to be later introduced in the book. And right in the first paragraph, it says that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. We talked about that last week. But then it says this, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, it's been a long time since we talked about these verses. This, we talked about those the second week that we've been, we were in John. So last year, a long time ago. But one of the things some of you might remember, I think most of you don't remember, but when we talked about those verses, John uses a play on words. And when he talks about that the light, that the darkness has not overcome it, that overcome, there's two ways in which that's used. The first is the obvious one that we see that the the darkness does not conquer the light. But the other side of it, the play on words, is that the darkness does not even comprehend the light. It can't understand the plan that the light is doing. 
That verse, the truth of that, that darkness cannot comprehend and cannot conquer light, that's the truth that we're going to see in our passage. So here's our plan for this morning. We're actually going to go through our passage three times. The first time we're going to go through, we're just going to see the darkness. We're going to just observe how things progress. The second time through, we're going to look and see what is Jesus doing? How is Jesus sovereign even when it looks like everything's being broken? The final one is for a a challenge for ourselves of how do we then interact with the truth of God's sovereignty. So, first time, let's look at just this descent into darkness. If you recall last week, last week started, did last week's passage start dark or light? Started dark. Lazarus has been dead four days. But what happens progressively through the passage? It keeps on getting what? More and more light. This passage does the opposite. This passage starts light and gets darker and darker. Kids, if you have your children's bulletin, because this is one of our family Sundays, you can draw right now. I want you to draw the priests and Pharisees plotting against Jesus. They're all of, it's the rulers of of the Jewish people, and they are making plans against Jesus. Let's look at the first verses. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. That's the glorious light that finishes up the previous passage. It was one of the purpose statements that Jesus said, this is what's going to happen. This is why I'm allowing the suffering of Lazarus' death. is because it will produce so that you may believe. He said that. And that's what happened. Many of the Jews, therefore, believed. This is a way better start than our last passage. This starts with people who have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And then we start the descent. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now we might think, well, maybe they're just trying to inform the Pharisees. Like this is, they're wanting to let them know, hey, good news. Jesus just rose, uh, brought back from life, to back to life, Lazarus, our friend. This is good news. But it's not. It says, but. It's showing a difference between the two groups. One group believes, but the others, they go to the Pharisees. This is very similar to to the invalid that John talked about earlier, the sign when the invalid is healed, and and they ask him, who did this? And he's like, I don't know who did this. And then finally he finds out that it, it was Jesus that healed him, and so he immediately goes to the Pharisees and sells Jesus out. Now, what's astounding to us is what did these people just see? They just saw someone brought back to life. Put yourself even in the disciples' position here. Why did the disciples not want to go to see Lazarus? What were they afraid of? Jesus, you can't go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill you. We can't go to Bethany. That's only two miles away. They're going to kill you. Now, Did they know what Jesus was going to do, the the, the miracle that Jesus was going to do? No. Jesus does that miracle. If you're a disciple and you just saw, all these people just saw Jesus bring someone back to life, if there's anything that's going to change people's minds, it's this. Man, this is the thing that is going to change the Pharisees and the priests, their view of what they should do to Jesus. This is going to change it. But it didn't. Can you imagine how disheartening that would feel if you're one of the disciples? Not only that, 
But they, these people that go know about this. All the way since back in chapter 7, it's been saying that the Pharisees have been trying to kill Jesus just before they tried to stone Jesus. These people know what's going on. It's common knowledge at, right now that there is a conflict between Jesus, the priests, and the Pharisees. So it starts a little bit darker. They go to them. But then the next part, we're like, okay, well, let's see what happens. It says, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. We're not really sure. Wait, is this getting darker? Are they just interacting with this? Now, don't miss the fact, this is something, again, connecting, because all of chapter 11 is working together. Don't miss the fact that what is causing all of this conversation to happen is the fact that Lazarus has been risen from the dead. The reason that the Jew, these Jews have gone to talk to the priests and Pharisees is because of what Jesus did. So they're like, okay, what, what are we going to do? This man performs many signs. Notice, they don't contradict that. They're not questioning the people and saying, I don't know. Did Jesus really bring him back to life? I, I think you, you're mistaken. No, they're willing to accept that. They're saying, sure, okay, yeah, okay, he's doing a lot of signs. And then they say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Doesn't necessarily seem dark. But then they show their heart. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What they're really worried about is losing what they think is their identity. What they're, what they're concerned about is what Jesus is, going, is doing is going to replace our position. It's going to replace what we see. It's our identity. There's good reason to think, even because in Acts it's used this, this way, um, in other verses, that when they're talking about our place, what they're talking about is the temple. That Jesus is going to remove, if, if this continues, then the Romans are going to come. They're going to remove the temple. They're going to remove the nation. Now, there's a lot of ironies in this text. Because what are they asking? What do we do? And, and what do they want to save? Their place and their nation. And they're going to come up with all these plans. In the end, did they save their place and nation, the one that they're holding on to so tightly. No. They're unable to do it. But one of them, verse 49, one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, okay, maybe Caiaphas is the guy that's going to step in and correct them. Maybe Caiaphas, he's the high priest. If we're going to hope in any leader, if we're going to say, man, this is the guy that's going to set them straight, it's going to be Caiaphas. He's the one that's supposed to be the shepherd above other shepherds in Jerusalem. He's going to set them straight. So look, let's see what he says. You know nothing at all. All right, maybe. Might be starting okay. Nor do you understand. All right. Let's see what's happening. That it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Oh. Man, the one guy that we're like, okay, maybe this guy's going to pull them back. And he says, you guys don't know anything. You guys don't understand this at all. You guys are asking, what do we need to do? It's obvious what we need to do. This guy needs to die. 
it's better for you that one man should die. Now, here's, here's a little interesting element there. That better for you, he's saying that in a limited sense. He's not saying it's better for everyone, although that's true, the irony again that he doesn't understand what he's saying, but it's better for us. It's better for those of us right here. And, and the people he's talking to are the Jewish leaders. It's the Sanhedrin. It's the rulers of, of, of the Jews. And he says, it's better for us. We won't lose our place. We won't lose our nation. Rome won't take that away. It's better for us if this one man dies. Now, that's his interpretation. It's not actually true the way he's seeing it. Verse 51 says, He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The beautiful there, right in the middle of here, we have a little glimpse of light that this is revealed to him that this is better. But what he shares to the people around him is not what was revealed to him. It's his interpretation of that. Because look at the decision that they choose from there. Verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Don't miss the progression of what's happening here. These people come and say, hey, that Jesus that you've been looking for, yeah, he just brought someone back to life. What are we going to do? This is a big problem. He's bringing people back to life? No, that's going to ruin everything. That's going to ruin our plan. Everyone's going to turn to him. If everyone turns to him, then Rome's going to come in. Who are they worried about? They're worried about Rome, not about God's plan. They're worried about people. And then if that happens, they're going to take away something. What are they going to take away? Our place. Our nation, our things that we value, our identity on this earth. They're worried about that. These are the people that should be looking, seeking, and setting their eyes on things that are above, seeking and setting their mind on Christ. And instead, they're descending into darkness. Caiaphas gets up and he's like, guys, you don't understand anything. You are all wrong. This guy should die. That's the only solution here. He needs to die. It's better for us. And the end result is that they say we should put him to death. Verse 54 then says, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. It says therefore, right at the beginning of this verse 54, because of the plan that they are doing, they lose Christ. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews. This is a turn. This is starting that hinge in the Gospel of John. Jesus has been coming and preaching good news to the people. Jesus is here. He has said, I have come not to condemn you, but to save you. But the dark plans of man have terrible results. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among them. Coming down to verse 55, it says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Now this doesn't seem good or bad. This just seems, okay, this is what the Jews do. And, and John always talks about these feasts and festivals, and, and he uses them to show something greater, that something more is coming. And we'll look at that in the second time through. 
But what are the people doing? Why, why are they coming up to Jerusalem? To purify themselves. They're, they're following the law that they are meant to, if they've been defiled in different ways, they were meant to come and purify themselves. One of the ways in which they could be defiled, obviously, is breaking God's law or, or interacting with death. What's the irony? They're coming to purify themselves, and what they will do in just a few short days is put an innocent man to death. The other irony, though, is, is even in the grammar of this sentence. Because it says that they come up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves, period. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think that he will not come to the feast at all? This is one of the irony things. Okay, they're looking to purify themselves, period. They were looking for Jesus. Separate things. They want to purify themselves. That's one issue. Here's the other issue. They're looking for Jesus. What should that be? They were looking to purify themselves, so they looked for Jesus. That's what John has been wanting us to reach that point. You want to purify yourselves? That's not going to happen any other way than through Jesus. The darkness is, though, that instead of looking to Jesus in order to purify themselves, they're looking for Jesus in order to turn him over to the authorities. What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Each step of this passage leads to a darker place. And there's almost a letdown. I, I even felt this letdown from last Sunday to this Sunday, of we finished last passage in this glorious moment. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And we saw the glory of God in what Jesus did. We saw his power to rescue and redeem sinners. That was a glorious moment. And we want to ride that high and say, this is what it's going to be. Because Jesus has demonstrated victory in this area. It's just going to be victory after victory after victory. And then the very next passage just talks about the rulers of the nation are planning to kill him. Not in spite of what he did to Lazarus, but because of what he did to Lazarus. They're totally into the darkness. And that is a letdown. Don't we feel that way when we just look at the course and trajectory of this world? Where maybe you've had these victory elements in your life where God has shown himself to you that you, you've realized who he is and you're holding on to something, but then you look up and you look around you and it's chaos. It's dark. I don't know about you, but, but sometimes that causes me to question, man, is God sovereign in that stuff? God, how are you going to turn that around? God, how are you going to take this? I mean, think about the disciples. They don't know where this story is going yet. Jesus has, has hinted at it, but they're still not sure. Because John keeps on saying at different times, Jesus said this, and later, after he had been uh, killed and brought back to life, then they saw what he was saying. But right now, they're so confused, and, and they're looking and like, man, Jesus, you just did this huge thing. And the result is that now they want to kill you all the more. 
What we see in this as we look at this is that the dark plans don't comprehend what God's doing. They don't understand. They're, they're looking only on one level. But now let's look at what Jesus is doing. Because it might seem, again, when we look at this passage, there's only one time that it really says Jesus. It says it in, in verse 54. But other than that, it's like, well, where is he? What's he doing? How are we going to learn all of these things about Jesus? One of the things I think we, we fall into thinking when, when, when we're imagining this stuff is, is we kind of think of the world as a giant chess match that's pretty evenly matched, but, but God's just a little bit better of a chess player than the enemy. And God is, is ready to respond. So he's there, he's the better player, and, one, and you know, darkness and evil is going to move one piece, and then God's like, okay, how are we going to respond to this? Okay, let me think through the next couple steps. You know what? This is what I'm going to do. And then they take a step and like, oh, shoot, they invaded Ukraine and, and Christians are suffering. Okay, let me think. How can I spin this? How can I use this? That's what we do. That's our view of things. That's not God's view. God's not looking at this as a chess match. He already knows exactly what's going to happen. And so when the evil plans happen, it's not where it's like, okay, how am I going to make this work? It's no, even those evil plans are what God is using in order to accomplish his plan. Look now, go back to the beginning of our passage. Many of the Jews... Therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Do you think it was a surprise to Jesus that there was a negative response to his miracle with Lazarus? No, he knew it. In fact, it kind of demonstrates even more the love he had for Lazarus because he went to do that. He, the love he had for Martha and Mary, knowing that this was the sign that would set everything into motion up to his crucifixion. He goes and saves Lazarus knowing that that's going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back that starts the whole process where now they've been wanting to kill him, but now it's done. They are going to do this. But Jesus still went. He knew that. But then look at what it, what it says about the place and nation. If we go on... If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. One of the things that keeps on happening is that people, the, the Jews often will say something profound or just slightly off without even knowing. Jesus does not just, he's not going to take away their place and nation. Jesus comes to give them a better place, a better nation. Back in John 2, Jesus said, destroy, they ask him, what signs do you have when he cleansed the temple and he put them all out and they say, what signs do you give us? What signs do you show us in order to do these things? And he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then John has this little excerpt where he says, now the disciples did not understand what he was saying, but after they did not understand he was talking about the temple of his body, but later they did. Jesus is bringing a better temple. Even later with, with the Samaritan woman, where she says, our fathers say to worship on this mountain, but your fathers say to worship on that mountain. And he says, there's coming a day where it won't be on that mountain or this mountain, but every person will worship in spirit and in truth. Why? 
Because in, in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 2 and in chapter 6, it says that do you not know that you are a temple to the Lord? Jesus is bringing something better, a better temple. Go ahead and turn to Ephesians 6. Or sorry, Ephesians 2. Turn to Ephesians 2. And normally we don't necessarily jump over a bunch to other passages. We stay where we are. But what I want to show here is when we're confronted with man, is God still sovereign when he's allowing the rulers of these nations to go different ways? What is God doing? Well, we see in Ephesians 2 verses 11 through 22 that Jesus is bringing something better. A better place, a better nation. Because what is Caiaphas' big thing? Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He prophesied this, that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, so he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, which is made by the flesh in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's a dark place. That was us. We had no hope. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. What is that? What's that language? One nation. Fellow citizens and the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure... Wait, we've switched now from, from nation to another metaphor. What's the new metaphor? The whole structure being t joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you, are, you also are being built together with, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. They're worried about their place, their nation. They're holding on to it. They're not willing to let go of that. They're not willing to relinquish it. And yet what Jesus is bringing, what they're missing, is that Jesus is bringing a better temple, a better nation. This is what Jesus has been saying back in John chapter 10. I, I have other sheep who are not part of this fold. I am going to call them. They will hear my voice and they will follow me. There are others who are scattered abroad. But that's not how the high priest is seeing it. He's looking at this and saying it's better not that the whole nation should perish. Again, what, what is the other illusion here? What, what does he saying? It's better. Now, does Caiaphas have the right to say it's better for Christ to die for me? 
That's not his right. We don't have the right to go and demand Christ's sacrifice for us. We don't have the ability to say, hey, God, um, we're just looking, and there's millions of people, there's billions of people on this world, and we think, um, we think we're worth it. It's, it's better for us if, if you die. And we're looking at the math, one, billions, this makes sense. There is no scale in which that makes sense. The magnitude of who Christ is, for us to ever say it's better for you, the God of the universe, to die for me, that's not something we can say, but it's something that God can say. It's something that God can choose to do. And we have this idea, it is better for you that one man should die for the people. This is Romans 5. Death entered through one man, but one man's righteousness brings life. This is the truth that it is better, not because we think it's better, but because God says it's better and that he chooses to do this. But even thinking of what it said in Ephesians 2, how were we given peace? How did the peace come to us? It says, through his blood. So when these people make the plans in verse 53, the plans to put him to death, they're thinking that that's going to conquer him because they think that Jesus is the problem. They're, not look, they're saying that the solution is to remove Jesus because he's the problem, not knowing that his death was the solution to give life. Do you see the sovereignty of God who takes these plans of men and go, they want to conquer the light, but they can't conquer the light? We come to verse 55, and it says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. In John, all the way back in chapter 1, John the Baptist, not the author John, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This whole Passover idea is that Jesus is that Passover Lamb. Friends, do you see in this passage, even though Jesus really isn't mentioned that much, that he's in every single step? He, here's, here's the clearest example that the dark plans of man do not comprehend God's plan and do not conquer God's plan. What is the goal of the dark plans? What, what is the world trying to do? They're trying to conquer Christ. They're trying to beat him. Now, what do we see is the clearest way that they don't comprehend that? Because what is the plan that they have that they think this is what's going to conquer him? We'll kill him. Humanly, does that make sense? Absolutely. If I have a plan and you put me to death, chances are that wasn't part of my plan. And yet, so they look at Christ and they say, hey, you know what we're going to do? We'll put him to death. This is the plan. That's how we're going to win. But if they comprehended what Jesus was going to do through his death, would that have been their plan? If they're trying to beat Christ and they understand what his death will accomplish, will, would they have ever decided to go about that way? No. Man's dark plans, they do not comprehend God's plan. That's a comfort for us. 
We can think, oh man, it's chess and, and, and no one really knows everything. Listen, the enemy is not sovereign. If the enemy were sovereign, they would have never chosen the cross. The enemy's not sovereign. God's sovereign. This is not Jesus playing chess and having to keep on coming up with new plans. He knows exactly what's going to happen. So they don't comprehend, but they also don't conquer. Again, what is the greatest symbol of conquering? If, if, if the darkness had, if you were to think, all right, this is your best chance. If we're personifying darkness and saying, darkness, all right, here's your best time to, to beat the light. When would that happen? When they kill the light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He says, I am the light at the very beginning in John 1. He is the light and life of men. Well, if we're going to conquer the light, the best way is to do that. And so in the, the moment that we're like, man, if there was any time where darkness would win, it's at the moment of the cross. But one of the things we said last week is that when it seems darkest, when suffering seems darkest, when sin seems darkest, that is precisely when glory shines the brightest. There's no darker moment than the cross. And yet there is no brighter moment when Christ's light was revealed to all of us than what he did through the cross. When he says, it is finished. When we're thinking about the suffering of this world, when we're not just looking at our own suffering, the own small things, the things in our lives that will never make it into history books, the things that we, we weep over that, that just aren't going to be part of the story that people are going to know in 50 years, that are huge to us. We can often, we work at points where we're like, okay, I see God's sovereignty. But then we look at the big things. God, what were you doing here? And it's hard to know. But what we see in the truth of this passage is that we look and we're like, man, how, where's the light? Just seems like darkness. But then when we dig deeper, we see that there is a light. That's our comfort. The biggest application I want to give all of us here is both the comfort and trust of God's sovereignty. Trust that God knows what he's doing. Trust that even in the moments where it seems darkest, God has a plan. He has a purpose. That he's not going to think, oh man, I have to change things and you know what, let, I'm just going to let that happen. I'm going to start a new plan. No, he does it precisely through their dark plans. He accomplishes his plan. Trust him. Be comforted in that. That's what I'm praying for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, that they are holding on to that confidence of Christ's sovereignty. But, but even though that's not our reality, and I don't want to say that we have an easy reality either, the ideologies, the things that are happening in our world that are completely counter to everything of God, we also live in a place where the dark plans are happening. But I also want to preach this now so that we are holding on to this because Ukraine could be our future. There may be days when we face dark times like that. But we can have confidence in knowing that God's light is never conquered. That man's plans cannot comprehend the plans of light and that they're not going to see, oh, this is how we're going to go against God because we know exactly what he's going to do. They don't know that. But briefly now, I, I want to go back through the third time. 
Because, and, and this is more, not exactly the, the, the application where I'm like, oh, this is exactly what John was doing when he wrote this. This is more a, a pastoral application for us. One of the wrong, the right, well, the right view of looking at God's sovereignty is comfort and trust if you are in Christ. That's not a comfort for you. Knowing that Christ wins is not a comfort if you're still in darkness. You need to repent. You need to place your faith in Jesus. All of the promises, all of the good news that I've shared, those are only true for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, to those who have believed where our passage starts, that many believed. That's good news for them. If you're not in that place, it's not good news for you yet. You need to choose to believe. But there's that comfort and trust. But here's the, here, those are the right ways of seeing God's sovereignty. But the wrong way of seeing God's sovereignty is, is an element of viewing it with fatalism. Eh, what's going to happen is going to happen. I mean, they tried to make plans and God still did it anyways. And so now, I mean, I'm going to just, doesn't really matter what I do because it's still going to result in God's plan. And so who cares? And that's a temptation when we're talking about God's sovereignty, to look at this with just a fatalistic view. But, but here's, here's something that I want to kind of divide out for us. God's will is going to happen. God's will will happen. But there's an element of God's desire for each of us. God is sovereign. And yet, God's sovereignty does not remove human responsibility. We are still responsible for how, for the parts that we play in God's plan. I want to look through, again, just the different things that the men in this story did and their errors where God accomplished his plan in spite of them, not through them. Not in the sense of through them in a good way. Look at the beginning. The first thing we see is that they refused to see the truth. Jesus had done a miracle. Jesus had revealed who he was. The response to that was to place their faith in them, but they refused to see that. Instead, they ran to their other leaders. Then those leaders see a problem where there wasn't one. What are we to do? He's doing these signs. Many are going to believe him. They see that as a problem when it's not. Their trust is in the power of man. They're, they look at the Romans. They don't look at other things. They look at themselves. They refuse to surrender, to relinquish what they believe defines them, their place and nation. They assume they alone can see things clearly. You know nothing at all. You do not understand. They seek to justify their own actions by saying, well, this is better they only are concerned with themselves. Well, this is better for me, and therefore it's justified. They missed what God was really doing. They didn't see that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but to gather into children of God. They didn't see the reality of that. They assumed they understood God's plan when they didn't. And then they presumed to accomplish that plan by their own means. Do you think God's plan is ever for you to sin? No. These people think that they're accomplishing God's plan. They're not. 
They missed the greater blessing. They led others astray. Here's, here's the, the, the story that I want to trace out from this and even throughout Scripture. How many times do we see people in Scripture assuming they understand God's plan and then presuming to accomplish it in their own means? Think about Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going, you are going to have children that are more numerous than the stars. What does Abraham do to accomplish that? He sleeps with the servant. He presumes to accomplish God's plan his way. What was the result of that? Enmity between his descendants for the rest of humanity. Jacob. Jacob had been told that the, 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 young, the older will serve the, the younger. How does Jason accomplish that plan? He cheats his brother. He goes and he lies to his dad. Hey, it's me. I'm your son. He puts goatskin on his, his arms. What's the result of that? He's an enemy with his brother for the rest of his life and his descendants as well. He never gets to see his mom again after that moment. Lot. Lot, who, who Abraham said, you can choose anywhere. And Lot doesn't ask God where to go. He looks with his own eyes and says, you know what? That's where I want to be. I want to be in the, the best land right outside of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot loses everything. This whole idea of I'm going to accomplish God's plan by my own means, and there's just heartache in that. We do this. The, the most one of the most common examples that I think of just... Um, and I've just seen my parents deal with or, or things, is in areas of relationship. Where we have someone that, that they assume that what God wants them is to be in a relationship. And so now they're going to humanly make that happen, and they compromise. And they start a relationship they shouldn't start. And they go through this whole process, and the end result is heartache. Because they presumed to, and they assumed God's plan. And they presume to accomplish it their own way. This happens all of the time. What should happen, this is what happens in this story. What they should have done is said, wait, God, you just revealed something, that Jesus is going to die for the nation. God, what, how should we trust you in that? What should we do with that truth? Lord, what would you have us do? What they should have done is submit to God, to trust God. That's our responsibility. There will be times where you're not going to understand God's sovereignty. There will be times where you're not understanding what God's doing. In that moment, submit to him. Ask him, God, what would you have me do because I don't understand? Because on the other side, as, many, as much as we have examples where this didn't go well, we have so many examples where it did go well. Again, a bad example, Moses with the rock. He strikes the rock in a way that he understands, and the result is he never gets to go to the promised land. But think about Noah. Noah, build an ark, not in the middle of an ocean, with no rain. That doesn't make sense, but God saved him. Think of Gideon. Gideon, you're going to go and fight against this people that outnumber you an absurd amount already, but your army's too big. Let's get rid of most of them. Think of Abraham when he went to Lot and said, Lot, you can choose first. And Lot took the best place, and then he goes to God and says, God, where do you want, what do you want me to do? And God says, look, I'm going to give you all the rest of this. When people trust God and do things, and they don't refuse to see the truth, when they, see, when they don't see problems where there aren't any, when they believe that the authority go, comes from God, 
when they don't put their trust in human things, when they, when they are willing to surrender what they are holding on to, when they don't seek to justify their own actions that are only beneficial for themselves, then they don't miss what God's truly doing. That's the comfort, that's the, that's the challenge that I want to have for us. The, the main comfort is trust God's sovereignty because it's happening. But on the other side, don't then let that lead to a fatalism where we are not wanting God. God, I know your plan's going to happen anyway, but I know your desire is to work through me. Lord, work in my heart so I am a willing participant. Man's dark plans cannot comprehend God's plans and are inevitably conquered by his light. My prayer for all of us then is that we would embrace that light and we would embrace what God is doing.